Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 352nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today was described by the late Roger Ebert as, quote, the most creative screenwriter of his generation, close quote, and by The New Yorker as, quote, probably the most critically acclaimed screenwriter of his era, close quote. And he is known, according to The New York Times Magazine, quote, for films so rich with surreality and self-referential lunacy that they feel as if they might be spun apart by the force of their strangeness, yet miraculously cohere, close quote. Three of his scripts, 1999's Being John Malkovich, 2002's Adaptation, and 2004's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, brought him Oscar nominations, he won for Eternal Sunshine, and also appear on the Writers Guild of America's list of the 101 greatest movie screenplays, ever written. And he has also ventured into directing films from scripts that he has written, starting with 2008's Synecdoche, New York, which Ebert called, quote, the best film of the decade, close quote, and continuing with 2015's Anomalisa, a stop-motion animated film which he co-directed with Duke Johnson, and most recently with I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which debuted on Netflix on September 4th less than two months after the publication of his acclaimed debut novel, Antkind, Charlie Kaufman. Over the course of our conversation, the 61-year-old and I discussed what led him to abandon his passion for acting to pursue writing and directing, what his writing process is and how each of his scripts evolved, why it was 12 years between the first live-action film that he directed, Synecdoche, and the second, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. 
As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, Information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C O R I E N T.com. Corient.com. Charlie, thank you so much for doing this. I was looking back at my notes. I think the first time I interviewed you was 2008, time to around Synecta Key. Uh, then mo- most recently, Carlo Vivari in 2016, which was where you were being honored. Yeah. And, uh, and now it's a treat to get to speak with you again. So just to begin with, we always ask our guests here uh, where they were born and raised and what their folks did for a living. I was raised until I was about 11 in Massapequa, New York. My father was an engineer. My mother had been a social worker, uh, but gave that up when she got married. And I have read that as a kid, you actually were very into... Um, performing. I had read about high school and community plays, an improv group, uh, to the extent that you ended up receiving, a, I guess, a, a, I don't know if it was a partial or full scholarship from your high school for achievement in dramatic arts. And so I just wonder why, after starting it at BU, I believe on a kind of a acting track, why did you then transfer to NYU and focus more on writing directing? Um, just to be clear, the award that I got was, a, was a, a very small monetary award from my high school. It was um, a memorial award. So it wasn't a scholarship. It didn't pay for my education or anything. Um, got it. I, I just, I don't know. I kind of started to feel embarrassed about being an actor. But I guess I started to feel very self-conscious and I don't know. I, for a very long time, I, I, questioned whether or not I had made the right decision in giving it up. And I think that I've come to the conclusion now that I did, but it, it was a long time coming because I didn't have any career uh, for until my early 30s in, in, in anything related to film. So I was thinking, you know, I really loved this acting thing. And maybe if I stayed with something that I was so passionate about, I would have had a different outcome. But And do you ever miss uh, acting? I don't know. I I've come to the conclusion that, that I, I don't think I'd be very good at it anymore. I love actors and I love what they do. And I'm in awe of their ability to be vulnerable when they're good. But yeah, I'm not sure. I think I, I think about it sometimes. For a while there, I thought maybe I could do a play or something. But um, I don't know at this point. I think not. Do you think that at the... So it was, it was not until you were already some way into college that you made the kind of uh, the change, was there something that you think maybe happened that made you more self-conscious than you had been? Because obviously you'd been, you'd been doing a lot of it up to that point. Yeah, it's odd. I do remember being embarrassed. You know, I went to Boston University, which is a big school and has a lot of different, obviously different schools within it. Um, I remember being embarrassed when people asked me what I was studying to say I was studying acting. I, I, I said I was studying theater because that somehow seemed mm-hmm. less awful. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. 
I remember we um, we had this movement class, and uh, it was it, the 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 school of the arts or the the theater school was in this big old building, and it was like like it seemed like it had been a warehouse at one point, and the movement studio was on an upper floor. And there was a giant window, like a giant loft, industrial-looking window overlooking the highway. And there were a lot of construction workers out there doing some kind of work all the time when we were in the class dancing around and um, in, in our tights and um, <laughs> laughing. And they would laugh at us. And I, I was so embarrassed by that at that point in my life. Uh, so... I don't know if that's why, but that didn't help. Right. <laughs> so now at the time and I, that I liked you... that class, by the way, um, yeah. I really liked it. I enjoyed it. So it wasn't like I, I, I didn't have the I didn't have the confidence in myself to sort of like be where I wanted to be. Right. Well, so at the time that you switched colleges, how much writing had you done up to that point? Was it something you did for pleasure on on the side or, or what sort of writing, even if you had, I mean, I, I, I had been involved in my childhood in theater, in writing theater, in writing and directing movies. I did, you know, super eight movies with my friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was always something I did and it was always in the service of something theatrical. I, I did some stand up when I was in high school, I did improv. So it was always sort of like, that was always an aspect of what I did. And at the time you started at NYU, was it something you immediately, you know, were you pleased with that decision? Were you enjoying the the focus on, I, I guess, I guess part of this question actually should be, did you really go there to focus on writing or was it just also, would you have been, were you just as excited to dabble in learning about directing or I wanted or to be a director. I, I pictured myself mm -hmm. being a writer and director and maybe somewhere down the road, at that point in my life, I would also be in the movies, you know. Um, yes. But I remember there was a big difference between acting classes and, and film classes. I, I, I have very, very clear, distinct kind of colorful memories of acting classes. And I don't have that for film classes. I mean, people, I mean, it was like crazy. I mean, actors are crazy. And, um, <laughs> you know, and acting students are times 10. And, you know, people would be disrobing in class. And, you know, I'd never seen anything like this before. And um, it was kind of <laughs> cool. And then it was like, then it wasn't anything like that in Phillips school. And I, and I barely like, I mean, there are people I was friends with there, but I, I don't have the sense of them that I had of the acting students. And I still have those people in my head to this day. Well, it seems like the certainly a primary relationship that did come out of NYU was and I don't know if it's if it's Paul Prosh or Paul Proc. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, yeah, it's Paul. No, Pro it's Paul Proch. Paul Proch. Okay. Yeah. So can you share how you guys started working together? Because it seems like you both while you were at NYU and then for years after really collaborated on a lot of stuff together. Yeah, I knew Paul from school. I worked on a movie that he wrote that somebody else directed. I worked as a production designer on that, and then I shot one of Paul's movies, which, which I did a terrible job on. And I feel <laughs> badly about it to this day. It's not, you know, focus is not my strong point. Um, <laughs> so after, after we graduated and then Paul graduated a year ahead of me, after I graduated, I approached him, no pun intended, um, about collaborating <laughs> on something. And we started to write together, uh, then. And, um, we wrote a lot, uh, for National Lampoon, 
-hmm. eventually that happened. Initially, we wrote a screenplay, and then we wrote another screenplay. Uh, and then we did some small things for the Lampoon, like um, they had these letters to the editor, which were all fictional. And we started out doing those. And then we wrote these fictional news items. And eventually we wrote um, several fiction, longer fiction pieces. And we wrote uh, a play together, which actually got produced. I had moved to Madison, Wisconsin, and we had written a play called The Fat Zip, which got produced there uh, at the, a place called the Broom Street Theater. And um, we, we wrote some TV pilots together, too. Or not pilots, spec scripts that we, yeah. we tried to sell. Um, didn't have any luck getting an agent or had no idea how to do that. And eventually we just stopped writing together. I did come across one thing which I found interesting, which was you were saying, you know, when you don't have an agent, how do you get how do you get your material before people who might want to make it? Well, you just send it around. And it sounded like the one guy who actually engaged with you in a nice way was Alan Arkin? That's correct. Nobody ever responded. I I worked at the Metropolitan Opera in their ticket department, and I worked at the Roundabout Theater. So I had access to famous people's addresses from Rolo <laughs> Rolodexes at the time, and I would just copy them out and send, the, send, a, send them our scripts. I sent a script to Spielberg. I sent a script to Jessica Lange. Other people I don't recall now. But yeah, we sent one to Alan Arkin, and he responded and he wrote us a really nice letter. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. You know, it's like little things like that that happen along the way when you're struggling for so long that just kind of keep you kind of motivated a little bit. Absolutely. So at some point, I guess you wind up in Minneapolis. I know you were talking a minute ago about uh, Wisconsin. Then you wind up in Minneapolis working on a newspaper and I guess continuing to write spec scripts. And then it seems like for the 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 a, a key turning point would have been pilot season of ninety one. What what led you out to LA and what almost led you away from LA before you finally started getting some traction there? Well, I avoided going to LA for a long time, and Paul and I, Paul, had come out to kind of uh, live in Minneapolis for a while, and we um, decided we were going to go to LA. And I bought a a car with all my money, which was a very <laughs> bad used car, and. Um, <laughs> And we had like $750 between us. And it, um, it died in Rapid City, South Dakota. Um, and we got stuck there while they needed to replace the transmission, which coincidentally cost exactly as much money as we had. So we <laughs> waited there for like two days while they got the parts. And then we drove back to Minneapolis with our tail between our legs. And, and that's when Paul and I were still writing together. Then I, then I was writing by myself and a friend of mine uh, had an agent. Uh, he was working in Hollywood, and uh, and he, his agent said he would read my material. So I wrote some spec scripts, and um, he did. I sent them to him, and he didn't read them for a very long time. But he eventually did read them, and told me I should come out to LA during hiring season for TV, which I did. I lived in like someone's spare room in North Hollywood, and waited, and nothing happened. Finally. Oddly, I got a job offer in Minneapolis uh, writing for a Fred Willard cable show, uh, which was going to be like a candid camera show. And um, I was ready to leave. I was packed. And I got a call from Get a Life, uh, David Merkin at Get a Life, who um, asked me to come in. And I did. And he met with me and he read my scripts and he said, I said, I'm leaving. You know, I said, are you offering me a job? He said, I'm not offering you a job yet. But 
don't leave. So I, <laughs> I trusted him and I turned down yeah. the job in Minneapolis. And luckily he wasn't lying to me. I got a job as a, a I guess, a staff writer on Get a Life. Yeah, the second season of... It was the a, second season, a, which lasted a half season, I think, yeah. <laughs> but I got my foot in the door. Fault. Not my yeah, fault. No, yeah. not my fault, I don't yeah. think. <laughs> Maybe my fault. It was a uh, just kind of a, a Fox sitcom, just to give people a sense if they don't remember Chris Elliott. And then, but then, okay, so now then comes something, I think, fairly soon after that has come up in a lot of different episodes of this podcast because so many talented people came, you know, were associated with this project that also didn't last very long. What was the, what was your experience as a writer with the Dana Carvey show? That was a few years later, I think, probably around 96. My experience was that I met with um, Robert Smigel and Louis C.K. Robert was the, um, you know, creator of the show and Louis was the head writer. And uh, I met with them at like Brillstein Gray in Los Angeles and they were shooting in New York and they told me, they really wanted me to do the show, but I'd have to move to New York. And they said, We're, it's going to be a dark show. It's going to be, you know, it's worth it. It's going to be worth it. So I moved out there and um, it was a very difficult job for a lot of reasons. Uh, it was very difficult for people to get their stuff on the show. There were certain people who were favored and the rest of us kind of just got very little on. So uh, I think it was sort of, it was depressing in that way. But, you know, I met a lot of nice people there. I, had, I have friends from that show to this day. And um, so, but the actual, like, show itself was, I didn't feel included. Mm-hmm. And, and then having moved your life across the country, it got the plug pulled pretty early. What was your game plan at that point? It was just definitely back to L.A. or were there some second guessing? No, I, I, there wasn't much going on in New York. You know, so I didn't like in terms of work. So I didn't really feel like I, I could stay there. I, I, I did while I was at Dana Carvey, I met with um, Michael Stipe's company about being John Malkovich. They had read the script and they were interested in producing it. So that was sort of like something that started to be in the works. I went back to L.A. I got a job on a show. I think the next show I worked on and the last show I worked on was called Ned and Stacy. And I worked on that show. And by the time I was done with Ned and Stacy, or by the time Ned and Stacy was done, had canceled. I, I tend to, I worked only on shows that were canceled. Um, <laughs> that was my specialty. I feel like Spike. Yes, in fact, Spike had already contacted me by the while I was still in New York because I remember I flew to L.A. to meet with him about being John Malkovich, and that, while I was still working on Carvey. So that was already sort of in the works. And and uh, and then after that, that was my last show. I just. I made the decision to just try to make movies after that. Yeah. And one question about being John Malkovich, and then I want to pause and ask you a little bit about just your writing process. But but in terms of so being John Malkovich was a script you just wrote in the midst of going between a bunch of TV shows and writing pilots and trying to just make it work as a TV writer. It was just something you did. Yeah, on the side. I mean, the way it worked for me and the way it works for everybody to a certain extent is that when the season is over, it's different now, I think, in TV. Mm-hmm. But at that time. The seasons were, you know, kind of like regimented and uh, I had the advantage of having my shows be canceled. So sometimes I was <laughs> I was there was a period of time between when the show was canceled and when hiring season started. And um, so I was trying to write screenplays. This is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a TV writer. I, I decided to try to be a TV writer because there seemed to be a path 
to get to be a TV writer that wasn't clearly marked to become a screenwriter in, in, in my in, in my understanding of things. Uh, so right. I wrote Malkovich probably in, I don't know, probably after The Edge, which was the second show that I worked on, uh, another sketch comedy show. And, um, and then it kind of kicked around Hollywood for a while. And um, uh, it was the, the idea was that it was going to be a sample and that maybe it would get me assignment work. And so that's what I was counting on happening. And it, it didn't. So you never actually thought that Malkovich would be made itself? No, I mean, I wasn't even a screenwriter at that point. I mean, no one knew who I was outside of TV. And even in TV, I wasn't a big deal. So, you know, the idea of picking a person out of thin air and writing a screenplay about them and expecting them to be in it, it didn't seem likely to me. I mean, I guess I, right. guess I hoped, but I wasn't counting on it. I was like, right. it was... It was something to write, and, and be, I think because I was writing it as a sample, I didn't really care about making it, like, fit to any formula, uh, which probably was a mistake because I think they want to see that you can do that. But um, so I didn't end up getting any assignment work from it, even though people liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's – before I go any further with, with Malkovich, let me just pause and ask you, uh, you know, these are just some general questions, but I'm curious about – just how you go about your writing. Maybe it's changed over the years, maybe not. But is there a place where ideas tend to come to you for for your scripts? I know, you know, we did an episode a while back with with Sorkin, for instance, and he says it's in a shower or in long car rides. Uh, You get all kinds of answers to this question from from different writers. I wonder what what it is for you. Oddly enough, for me, it's in the shower with Aaron Sorkin. (laughs) um, So... I, so I don't have a lot of ideas because it's a rare occurrence, but um, <laughs> but they are good when they happen. No, I don't know. I I, I would say that I think a lot when I'm walking, and okay. um, and I, I work a lot when I'm walking. Probably I have ideas when I'm walking too, but I, I would say that that's where it is mostly. And you walk a lot, like you like to go. For I walk a lot. Long walks. Yeah. yeah. Yes, very long walks. Where do you actually? like to write? Do you need to be in a coffee shop or something around other people? Or do you like to have total silence in your own home or something like that? I like coffee shops. I mean, I can't do that anymore, obviously. Right. But yeah, I like it a lot. And I do. I, I did a lot of writing there. I, mm-hmm. I also work at home, you know, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, it's nice to have things to look up and see and people and listen, eavesdrop on conversations and stuff is always fun. Do you tend to know where you're going to end a story, when, obviously when it's an original screenplay, do you tend to know where you're going to end when you start or do you outline or how do you, what, what's the structure that, or lack of structure that you prefer? My idea about that is that there's no way that I can know where something is going when I'm starting out. You know, it's like an exploration of, of a thought or an idea. So therefore for me to restrict myself to some sort of predetermined ending feels counterproductive. So I don't outline when I can help it. And, um, and I don't know the ending. On what do you write? I mean, there are people that are still using typewriters just as a, I don't know, superstitious or a computer or handwriting, uh, you know, or I I mean, just regular penmanship. Uh, What's your, what's your go-to? Well, I mean, since I walk a lot, I I always carry a pad with me. I write on a a pocket-sized notepad, but I also write on the computer. I write on napkins, um, on chopstick, paper chopstick containers. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm looking around the table now, what you can't <laughs> right. see, but there, there actually are things like, you know, like notes all over everything. 
And then what do you just throw them in a drawer and come back? I, to lose, them I lose them is what lose I do. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. I lose a lot of things, but um, uh, the notebooks are the, are the best in that regard. Uh, because I, I have lost them, and that's very upsetting when they fall out of my pocket and I don't hear it um, when I'm walking. But, um, but mostly I don't lose them. I have boxes of, no, of those little notebooks. Wow. So when you actually, you know, take these fragments of ideas and sit down to turn it into something, how long might you write for on a given day? Do you kind of make yourself sit down for a certain amount of time or do you just do what feels right? I think it depends on how panicked I am about a deadline or a missed deadline. I Mm -hmm. can force myself to write. Uh, When I was trying to finish this novel I just wrote and it was very, very, you know, it was years in the process. Uh, I, I, I would get up and go to a coffee shop every morning when it opened at 6.30 and sit there for four hours and write, which astounded me. And I'd be home by 10.30, having written 15, 20 pages. So that's good. But it's very difficult. I get distracted a lot. It's very difficult for me. The, the internet is a very, very bad invention um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And it, it, it causes me a lot of problems in that regard. I've spent yeah. some time at like, um, you know, uh, art retreats uh, uh, over the years, and they've been very helpful because you're kind of removed, and I'm more productive there. But when I'm home, it's hard. Is writer's block a real thing? And if so, how do you combat it? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's a real thing. It's a real thing for me, but, you know, what does that mean? I mean, it, it's, it's an idea. It's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I have found over the years that relaxing into it and accepting it as part of the process is for me the best solution to it because I have discovered through experience that even when I'm blocked, I'll come up with something maybe a week or a month later, which suggests to me that my brain is kind of processing stuff even though I don't know it. And often those are things that I'm very pleased with. So so I allow it to be part of the process. Uh, One last process question. Whose opinion, if anyone's, do you trust enough to let them read your work and give you feedback before you're ready to sort of be done with it? Is there anyone who, who would those people be, if anyone? No, I have people in my life who I show things to, but you know, okay. that's a, yeah, okay. they're not, okay. they're not in the business. Okay. So let's come back to being John Malkovich if we can. I guess three of the first original screenplays, being John Malkovich, Adaptation and Confessions of a Dangerous Mind dealt with real people in fictional situations. Just Is that purely coincidental? I don't know. I like it. I mean, I like stuff like that. I, I'm attracted to stuff like that. So I, I, I don't know if it's coincidental. I was offered the job to write Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. So I, it wasn't something I sought out, but right. I was attracted to it. I was attracted partially to the notion that this was a real person who felt compelled to lie in a book about who they were. I, I liked that about it. it interest, that, that's the aspect of it that interested me. Um, adaptation, I do feel like when I came to write adaptation the way I ended up writing it, not the way I had originally intended, I, I did think about being John Malkovich and the fact that I was willing and able to do that to John Malkovich. I should be willing and able to do it to myself. So <laughs> there was, it was a thought. But I do yeah. see that idea like it, you know, it, it, I do... I do like mixing um, real things and fake things in, in my fiction, you know, um, in 
in um, this book I wrote, there's real yeah. people, but there's fake people. There's real movies and there's fake movies. And it's never obviously explained which is which. And I, I, I think it tickles me because it would tickle me to read it mm-hmm. in somebody else's work. If I, you know, if, if I read about a movie and then and that seemed interesting to me and then I looked it up and, and saw that it didn't um, exist, that would please me. And conversely, I've read that people, there are movies within this book that people can't believe actually do exist that do exist. So I like both of those. Right. And as you say, I guess it it all kind of started with with Malkovich getting on board with the script of being John Malkovich. I guess, can you share how that process worked? You, You just at a certain point sent him the script and said, what do you think? Or did, how did that? No, I don't know how he got it. His um, partner, um, his business partner, at Mr. Mudd, I think that's the name of their company, Russ Smith, got a hold of it. I didn't, I didn't send it to them. He got a hold of it and he showed it to John. Uh, This is way before Spike was involved and John Mm -hmm. read it. And then Russ wanted to meet with me, you know, then it just kind of went away and then Spike got involved and uh, Spike went to France to meet with John to try to convince him to do it. Uh, John was worried about doing it because, you know, there seemed to be problems to him, whether it was successful or well, whether it was a bomb, you know, that he, you know, into, in, in how it would sort of integrate into his future. So he had apparently had a good meeting with Spike and then he was in New York and Spike and I met with him in New York and I guess he wanted to see who I was and, um, and then he decided to do it, which is interesting because um, it's not exactly the same thing, but... Um, Meryl Streep wanted to meet with me, too, for adaptation. Like, after she'd met with Spike, I think they, they wanted to see if I was, like, like a, an asshole or something. I, <laughs> I, like, I don't know, like, what my energy was. Um, right. And my energy at the time, and probably still, but more so at the time, was just absolute panic. I was, right. I was so nervous meeting these people. I was so scared. Um, Even after being John Malkovich was so successful, that oh didn't go away. Oh, my God. You know, we, Spike and I had a meeting with Jack Nicholson about a movie idea that we had. And uh, we were meeting him at his house and we got lost. We couldn't find it. And I think that was probably, it was before cell phones or at least before we had them. And I was so thrilled that we weren't going to be able to find his house. I mean, I just absolutely (laughs) did not want to go there. Uh, But we eventually found it. So I had to. And what happened to that project? You know, it's interesting thing, this project, because it was a, an idea I had to do a movie about the Joker as an old man in a very sort of naturalistic, sad, I think it was going to be called The Joker in Evening, and it was mm-hmm. going to be about him living this very sad life and then sort of having the, making the decision to go back and do one more thing. But it was going to be a character study. It was not going to feel like any of those movies. And um, so we went and talked to him, and he liked the idea. This was when he was the Joker, so it was a long time yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, he liked the idea. And then I, I kind of like, and then we didn't know if they were going to let us even have the rights to it. And I kind of dropped the ball because I just, I don't know why. I just didn't, I never wrote it. <laughs> just well, stupid. Well, cool. You got to meet Jack Nicholson. That's a good story. Uh, yeah, uh, he was cool. <laughs> so obviously being John Malkovich worked out very well. And you and Spike uh, seemed to have kind of clicked. How Was it immediately clear you guys wanted to do another thing together? And, and just how did that thing end up being adaptation? No, I mean, I think it was clear that we wanted to work together again, but I took mm-hmm. this job re- adapting The Orchid Thief for Jonathan Demme. And, um, okay. and he was at that point, 
I think it was something that he was going to direct, presumably, or at least was con- going to consider directing. And I, I wrote it and I turned it in. And, um, and then I met with Demi and Ed Saxon and people at his company a few times. And I, somewhere in that process, Jonathan decided he didn't want to direct it anymore. And um, I mentioned it to Spike and Spike said he wanted to direct it. And he asked if he could. He asked Demi and they allowed him. So that's how it happened. And when along the line, I mean, it sounds like it was sort of a, a, for you, a torturous process of adapting something there for the, for the first time, maybe. Why was the orthothese something you wanted to adapt in the first place? And then how did it evolve into incorporating yourself as, I guess, a solution out of some form of, uh, of a writer's block there? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I really love the book. I don't know if, I think it was sent to me. I'm not even sure if it was sent to me or I read it and then I approached them. But I love the book and I love that I didn't know how to make it. Like I didn't know how to write it. I mean, that appealed to me. I wanted it to be like the book, not plot driven. And and somehow I, I you know, and somehow about flowers, the conversation I had it, it, as played by Nicolas Cage in the movie, talking to Valerie Thomas, who was really an executive who worked for, uh, Jonathan's company is very close to the conversation I had. And for some reason, they decided to allow me to go off and try to do this thing. And when I couldn't, I struggled with it for a very long time. And I was very anxious and very depressed and very worried because it was early in my screenwriting career. And I took this thing on and I took their money and I was afraid that was going to be this sort of very public humiliation for me. And I started to sort of think about okay, what am I thinking about now? What am I thinking about? And what I was thinking about was that I couldn't figure out how to write it. And then I just had this really stupid idea that what if I write about that? And when I started to think about that, stuff started to connect, you know? But I still wasn't sure. And I remember talking to Spike and mentioning this to him. And he said, you have to do it. And that was, I think, the thing that kind of sent me over the edge into it was that, like, this other person who I respected was sort of saying it seemed like a good idea as opposed to an insane, stupid idea, which is what I thought it was. <laughs> but uh, but it's funny when you when you hit on something, whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing, but when you hit on something that stirs you, the world opens up, you know, and, and it did for me with that. And this thing that I was struggling with probably for a year and a half, I was suddenly able to write. So that's how it happened. Yeah. A few weeks ago, we had Brian Cox on this podcast and we're chatting about Robert McKee and uh, just the I I got a huge kick out of that aspect of the whole thing. And I I just wanted to ask you, actually, Robert McKee once years ago, we had on the podcast himself. Uh, It sounds like there was some sort of a an understanding that had to be reached in order to use him as a character in the film. What was what was that? He wanted to he wanted to meet with us and he wanted us to listen to his thoughts about the script, which we were happy to do. And the one thing that he said that I think was a, 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 a sort of an, a note that we had happily addressed, but that was his like deal breaker note was that it's okay to make fun of him, but it's not okay to make fun of his students. And that seemed reasonable to me. And I don't remember if there was stuff in the script that did, but I'm assuming there must have been. But if there was, we took it out. I'm guessing there was. Uh, but the other thing that that uh, McKee said, and he was very nice. He was he was very generous and very nice. And and the other thing that he said was that he said he said uh, Brian Cox should play him. And neither Spike nor I. I don't know if he told you this, but it was his suggestion. 
but neither Spike nor I knew who Brian Cox was at the time. And, you know, it was kind of like we approached this, okay, well, McKee wants Brian Cox to play him. And then we started to watch Brian Cox and we thought, holy fuck, this is amazing. This is perfect. Yeah, that's great. Um, And just uh, McKee says that he has a card in his records for a Charles Kaufman taking his course three years before the film came out. Was that you? And was that sort of research for the for the film or was that just just out of interest in no it was, it was research it was research for the film when i decided that he was going to take that you know charlie was going to go to mckee's course i went to mckee's course yeah tell me about donald kaufman the creation of donald kaufman because as one of the great you know i'm i'm a kind of a interested student of academy awards history and here we've got a situation i believe where a fictional person is nominated for an academy award alongside you so just the whole idea of donald kaufman uh, when did that come along do you ever believe it would go as far as it went it's interesting um when i started to think about putting myself in the script and realizing the problems of having a writer as a character is that is that they're all alone all the time um, so I was trying to have somebody that that Charlie could interact with, that Charlie could talk to. And I had the idea of an identical twin sort of ne'er-do-well brother because I thought it was funny. And I, 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 I like the joke of I, I, the conceit of these identical twins with act, one actor playing two people is, is so silly to me that I thought it would be funny. But then as I started to work with that, then the idea that Donald would, you know, study with McKee and would become want to become a screenwriter like his brother developed. And, and that changed the whole course of the screenplay. So because the screenplay ended up being about the screenplay, really, and because Donald helped with the end of the screenplay and, and the transformation of it, I thought that the, that concept should extend outside of the script. So I put his name on the script. First of all, I didn't tell Demi or Demi's company that I was even including myself as a concept in this thing. It was just, they were expecting the Orchid Thief. And I certainly didn't tell them that I was going to put my brother's name on the script. So Ed Saxon uh, apparently was really outraged when he got the script because he thought we hired this guy and like he's, you know, he's hired his brother to write it with him. And that's not right, you know, without telling us. But um, um, so, yeah, so it was just kind of like this thing that, you know, when I was a kid, my parents went to the theater to see Sleuth. Uh, Do you know that movie? Yeah, Michael Caine, and, right? Yeah, well, in the yeah, right, and in the play, right, right, which, right. which was which was before the movie, they, they brought home the playbill, and there's three characters in the in the play. There's the you know the the older rich guy. There's the art guy having the affair, and then there's the detective who comes to interrogate the older guy. And, the, and, and for people who don't know, the detective is really the younger guy in a disguise, but the audience doesn't know that. And, and so they put a fake biography and a fake photograph in the playbill. And that was the most extraordinary thing to me when I was a kid. I don't know why, but I just like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Um, and I think that kind of thing <laughs> stayed with me. I, I like yeah. it. It's a good, I don't know what it is. It just... It just thrills me. Um, <laughs> so I think I'm sure that's sort of like somewhere in the back of my head when I put Donald on the on the cover oh, page awesome. of this. And uh, who got Donald's Oscar ticket? He didn't get an Oscar ticket. <laughs> he didn't get. No, <laughs> he, that, he did get a He did get a nomination, though, oddly. You're right. Um, yes. in, in real life. And I think that was, you know, the Academy decided they were going to play along, um, yeah. which was no, nice. Great. 
Yeah. It's awesome. So obviously coming on after that two years later is Eternal Sunshine. And you have said that while you were writing it, you were constantly kind of hoping to do away with the sci-fi element of it. So why was that? What, how, would that have, how would that have even worked? I don't think I was trying to do away with it. I mean, I, I, I recognized that that was the pitch that we sold. I felt like it was getting in the way of the thing that I was more interested in at the time, which was the relationship and, and the idea of showing a relationship like a romantic comedy that actually shows a relationship after they get together at the end. You know, what, what a human relationship, romantic relationship might look like is something that seemed to be rare in movies at the time. So I was more interested in that and dissecting that. So with that one, I don't know how involved you get with, with the casting of your, with a film that you have, that you were not directing as well. But in this case, you guys, you guys ended up with Jim Carrey, who is somebody who is sort of famous for improvising and his ability to do things quickly on his feet. I wonder how you feel about actors veering from the written word. There are some people, I think Mamet is maybe the most famous example where it's like, you better not miss an um or an uh, but for you, 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 you guys hired Jim Carrey. So how did that work? Was he, was he bouncing off of your script or did he, was he faithful to it entirely? I think that, you know, Michelle and I talked about Jim, um, before he came on and, and the things that we wanted from him and we didn't want goofy Jim Carrey. And, um, Michelle had that conversation with, with him going in and he was amenable to it. And I, I think he was, he was, you know, he was fine. He, you know, there was an occasional improv moment with him and some of them are in the film, you know, some of them were good. Uh, mm -hmm. some of them were not in the tone we wanted, but, but, um, I, I think, you know, Jim, Jim was very good about keeping to the character for mm -hmm. this. And, and on movies like that, before you started directing yourself, was it important to you to be on the set? Like, is that something that I know not all writers are, or can be, was that something that you worked out so that you were there in case things came up or how did that, how does that work? It wasn't mostly an issue of being there because I was needed. Um, I would go occasionally because it was enjoyable for me to see it being made and um, or being that them being made. Uh, there are occasions where I did some work while I was there. I think the biggest example of that is the end of Eternal Sunshine. And I don't remember if I was there that night because we had concerns about the ending, the very last scene, or I happened to be there and we had concerns about it. But it was rewritten on the set. But... I think mostly the scripts have been pretty okay in terms of not mm -hmm. having problems. So for Eternal Sunshine, having previously been nominated for those Oscars for being John Malkovich in adaptation, you won. And I wonder, did that mean a lot to you? Did it change anything? Uh, what is what is your relationship with the Oscar? I don't know. I mean, it didn't change anything for me, as far as I can tell. I think it's kind of cool to have won an Oscar. You yeah. know, I, I mean, that was sort of cool, but I, I, I don't, you know, I don't know the whole, yeah. that whole thing is a little uncomfortable for me, that whole aspect mm -hmm. of everything, you know? So, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I think the first two times, cause it was Malkovich and then adaptation that I was nominated for, mm -hmm. I was so, I was so glad I didn't win for Malkovich. I was so, um, panicked about the <laughs> idea of having to go up on stage at that point in my life 
at that point in my career, so I was glad about that. Um, and I, I kind of probably felt the same way in adaptation, although I don't remember that one as clearly. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you, just a quick follow-up out of curiosity, where do you keep the Oscar? Is it in an office or where do you like, where do you like to keep it? Um, it's in storage right now. Really? Cause, yeah. Cause I'm, um, I'm sort of between places. Uh, I'm Got in it. a sublet in New York and so it's in storage in a box somewhere. Got Presumably it. not stolen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that, uh, leads four years later to one of my absolute, I loved all your movies, but this one particularly Synecdoche, New York. And I was interested. I remember at the time to read that this is a case where I believe you and Spike were approached by Amy Pascal to make a, a horror film just kind of with with not much more specificity than that. Uh, if that's correct, why did she think of you as somebody to make a, a horror film? You You hadn't, that's not something that I would have guessed you would want to do. And then how did that evolve into what I don't think can be labeled any specific genre of a uh, movie that is, yeah, defies labeling? I don't know why Amy, you know, thought of us for that. Uh, we had come off of adaptation there. Um, she was very happy with that movie. She was very proud of that movie. It was a different kind of thing than they normally did uh, at Sony. And I think she, she liked that. So I think she was looking for something for something else for us to do. And this idea came up and, um, you know, I was just thinking about things that are really scary in the world to me. So um, I can't write a genre movie. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to. I find that <laughs> I, I find that when I get close to sort of thinking in that way that nothing feels true to me. I'm making decisions that aren't true to, to sort of like have an effect which I, which I choose not to do. So, um, but you know, these were, these were ideas that I, I, I felt were sort of horrifying ideas that were in this movie. So I, that's where, that's the sort of the motivation for the, for the project. She goes to you guys and says, can you make a horror film or did, or did she say, can you pitch me on a horror film? At what point did she realize what she had signed up for? <laughs> I don't remember. I, I honestly don't remember at what point. I remember that we did pitch something. I remember I went off and wrote it. I remember that Spike wanted to make Wild Things first. And I was not happy about that because I felt at that time that it had been such a long time and I didn't want to be, I wanted a movie, you know, in the works. And because yeah. you're working with Spike, I know that it's a very long process you know, the, the movie making and then the editing and, and all of it is, is, is a long process and it could have been like three or four years. Um, so I said, I asked Spike if it would be okay if I directed it. And I think that he said, yes, but I think that gave Sony cold feet. Um, like, I think they might've made the movie if Spike was directing it. I think they were happy enough with the script, but, um, but they, they put it in turnaround at that point. Now, why do you think you at that point, not even yet 50 years old, why were you, why are those things that you were already worried about in terms of aging, death, illness, isolation, loneliness, regret? I think you were not yet 50, married, I believe already with a kid. Uh, it's not like your life was itself so bleak. Why do you think those things were so much on your mind? I think those things have always been on my mind. I mean, from much younger than 50, I mean, I've always thought about those things. I, I, I have a tendency to worry and 
Yeah. And now you're, you know, you do get this chance to direct a film for the first time. Did you enjoy that process? You had an unbelievable cast of actors that you assembled for that as you, as you often do. But I mean, from Philip Seymour Hoffman, right down the line, um, what was your experience like for the first time directing? It's a very big project for a first film. Um, Mm -hmm. But oddly, or surprisingly, I I didn't panic. And I'm I'm not sure why, but I felt like it was doable. Maybe because I didn't know, because I was inexperienced, I didn't know how how difficult it, it was going to be. And it was very difficult. But by that point, you're in it and you're doing it and it's it's what it's what it is. Um, what was the most difficult? I mean, just the scale of what you had. Yeah, written. we had so many different locations. We had so many different actors. We had these giant sets that had to be built, just sort of like practical issues, like the fact that Phil Hoffman had to be in the makeup chair for probably six hours a day on days that he was in prosthetics and he was in every scene. So there was no way to shoot around him. You know, mm-hmm. so our, our, you know, our, our shooting days were limited because of that. We had a lot to do. It was just a very overwhelming process. I know that you, you felt that one of the things about Synecdoche that you were kind of happy about, I believe, was that it does not have what the prior scripts that you had done uh, have, which, which you described as a quote unquote clever reveal where everything suddenly sort of makes sense. This one is much more open to uh, the interpretation of the of the viewer. I guess do you have anything to say about that? I'd be curious if just what that was a deliberate decision from the from the outset. Let's just see if we can see if I can get away with doing this without wrapping it up in a bow for the audience. I think that the the big thing I was trying to do there was to make a movie that was interior, that was from a subjective point of view, but that didn't have voiceover. And so what I decided I would do would be to sort of project out into the exterior world, the stuff that represented very much like in a dream, you would have that experience. But I didn't want this to be a dream. I didn't want it to be revealed to be a dream. I wanted it to be this person's life in this form that was very subjective, subjectively told. Like it was a decision that there would be no establishing shots in this movie, you know, which gives it a very sort of maybe uncomfortable or claustrophobic feel, but that was a conscious decision because it's from this point's person's point of view. So this guy that Philip Seymour Hoffman's playing, Caden, like the like one of the main characters in your novel, is someone who bites off a massive project that kind of goes on forever. Mm-hmm. Not that it was planned to do that. In some ways, does I mean, I guess I wonder why that's a character that you might tap into. I don't know. It just seemed like a really interesting idea. And I like the I like the sort of the idea that while um, Caden's artwork is getting bigger and bigger, his wife's artwork is getting smaller and smaller. And I guess raising the question of how do you represent the world? You know, how can you represent the world? And coming, you know, comes down to the title of the movie, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, you can't. And if you try to, it's just going to become this unwieldy impossible thing it you can't do a one-to-one representation of the world Uh, (laughs) right it just you know like ideas interest me kind of because they're interesting like i'm attracted to certain things i'm attracted to scale you know um which you pointed out in 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 the book there's this impossibly long movie 
I just, I, I like stuff like that. And I don't, I don't necessarily even intellectualize why. It just interests mm-hmm. me. Well, okay. So now Synecdoche, I remember very well the moment when it came out was basically as the economy was going off a cliff. And so as I, uh, it did not get terrific distribution and did not get seen by as many people as I'm sure you would have liked. How tough was that for you having poured yourself into this as your first time as a director? I I imagine you didn't want it to be your last time as a director. And yet uh, also you've said that the script itself was very personal. There was one point I saw where, quote, for better or worse, Synecdoche was me, close quote. So the fact that it did not, you know, there were people who saw it and loved it like myself and then more important people like Roger Ebert and uh, all of that. But was the was the reception for the movie, how did, how did that affect you? Well, I mean, there's two different sort of answers to that question. Uh, one has to do with me as a person with an ego, you know, who gets his feelings hurt or feels misunderstood, uh, misrepresented, uh, you know, and there was that person. And then there was the person who couldn't get another movie made. So it was a business problem for me. I don't know which was a larger issue for me. They were both kind of like sort of maybe equally weighted. But I think the I think the the business aspect of it uh, followed me for a long time. You know, I did I did appreciate the people who liked the movie. And that wasn't it wasn't it helped me a lot, you know, to to feel like there were people who responded or, or that it moved. But, yeah, I couldn't get anything made after that. And I wanted to continue directing. And, and uh, I, I was, that was frustrating for, for What me. were you being told that you just, you know? Oh, I mean, I, I, I think in retrospect, people say things like director's jail, but I don't mm-hmm. think anyone ever tells you that you're in director's jail. I just couldn't get anything done, you know, and I had stuff that I wanted to get made. And I think that had I sort of agreed to let somebody else direct the things I had written that they probably could have gotten made. I'm, and, and, and granted, you know, you mentioned this in 2008, everything changed, you know, mm-hmm. not just for me. I mean, it became the, the, the business became just generally more conservative. And so, you know, part of that was just the reality of the times. But, you know, I had this script uh, called Frank or Francis that, you know, I, I couldn't get financing for. And I had this sort of extraordinary cast in terms of names because I was mm-hmm. told I had to have names. So I got 150 big name actors to agree to be in it. And um, I still couldn't get the money that was necessary to make the movie. And it wasn't like I was asking for $90 million or something. You know, we were were trying to get like under 20 um, and we, we, you know, we couldn't. So. And that one was a musical, right? And that was a musical. Yeah. And it's odd and it's quirky, but it's not. And it's funny. I think it's, you know, certainly funnier on the surface than Synecdoche, which I think is also funny, but it's a drier movie. This was jokes and silliness. What's What's interesting to me is that all those, you know, let's let's just say there was seven years, I believe, between Synecdoche and and Anomalisa, mm-hmm. in the, your your next film that you directed, which was very different, obviously stop motion animation. If it was a matter of needing to pay rent or whatever, if you had to, if you had to do it. Could you have written a movie that is more conforming to what is an easier sell in in Hollywood as opposed to a synecdoche or even I'm thinking of ending things, which are inherently 
from before you ever start directing them, just on the page even, just not made for everyone. Like, or for a bro- necessarily for a broader, uh, you know, if you're trying to appeal to a, a mass audience, that's not what you would do. So if you had had to do that, could, do you feel that you could write that script just as well? That kind of broader appeal script? I, d- I don't know. I've never, I've never done it. I've, I've written for television. I've written for conventional sitcoms. I seem to have done okay at it. I've done like polishing on conventional movies um, on occasion. And I mean, I think I could have. I, I wrote, a, I wrote a, uh, the first draft of this Chaos Walking script. That was a job. That was an assignment. That was me taking a job to sort of like try to get a job that I thought was somewhat mainstream. You know, it was mm-hmm. a YA novel. I think I did fine. They seemed to like it. That's where I met Robert Zemeckis because uh, mm-hmm. he was in, he'd read the script and he was interested in directing it. And we talked, and then I decided not to stay involved with it. Um, and at which point, I kind of think it went through. I mean, Zemeckis left as a director, and I think it went through. Well, I know it went through a lot of different writers. So, um, but yeah, I think I I think I can write conventional stuff. But you just understandably don't want to, right? You do your, it's not well, like your I said, books. I did, yeah. I did that. And I, You're you right. know, I, I did, um, you know, I wrote a polish on some, um, DreamWorks stuff and yeah, I mean, I like doing that stuff. I, I like doing the polish stuff more, I think, because it's quicker and there's something kind of fun about not being attached, you know, <laughs> like you go in and because it's a short term thing, you go in, they tell you what they want. You, you submit it. They say, no, I say, okay, well, what can I do to change it? I like, I don't argue for it because it's their right. movie and I'm trying to, they're paying me. I'm trying to do the, do a job. But if it's my own stuff where I put my heart into it and, and my worries and, and, and trying to do something sort of that's close to who I am, then I want it to be real. And so during those seven years between Synecdoche and Anomaly, so what was that, were you spending those years trying to get Anomalisa made, or was it more a matter of uh, doing those kinds of uh, uncredited polishes and things to, until you came upon something that you could sell? No, I, I well, first of all, I um, I did a pilot for FX, which I wrote and which I directed, and they decided not to make. I mean, pick up, um, mm-hmm. but it, but it exists. And Anomalisa was a was a, a stage play that I had written and it was performed by the same cast at Royce Hall in L.A. in 2005. And um, my friend Dino Stamatopoulos, who I know from Dana Carvey, has a, an animation studio called Starburns. And he had seen that and he approached me. It wasn't something I was trying to get made. He said, can we, you know, I'd like to make this into a stop motion animated film. And I was like, well, yeah, that's not going to happen. But if you can, if you can raise the money, sure, you know, and they were able to kind of raise a bit through funding things, GoFundMe thing, not GoFundMe, whatever it is. Kickstarter. That's right. Kickstarter. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so in terms of, I, I remember seeing models and things I moderated a few of the Q and A's for you guys back in 2015. And I remember just, it was unbelievable to see the painstaking, it's almost like Caden Cathard level uh, detail that goes into doing stop motion stuff. For you, was the pro like? I imagine that was totally new to you. Was that fun? Was that a pain in the ass to deal with? Like, what was your experience with Anomalisa? Uh, my experience was great, and you know, and so much of that um, has to do with the person I directed it with, Duke Johnson and Rosa Tran, who uh, produced it, and we became like a team. And 
you know, I, as you said, I didn't know anything about this world. So Duke being there um, was essential, you know, um, for me and, um, and for the production. And yeah, I, I love, I love stuff like that. I love fake reality. I love little sets. I love big sets. I love the little puppets. And uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. It was, it was a, you know, excruciating production because we didn't have the money to make it. And uh, it was always a struggle. And we didn't know if we were going to be able to finish it and all of that stuff. So, um, but yeah, it was exciting to see it as it came together. Oh, so it's a very cool movie. So over the five years since then, you, I think, did most of the work on this 700-page novel, Ant Kind, which people have really enjoyed. And I just want to mention, because I think it, it shows you have a, a good self-deprecating sense of humor, that the protagonist is a film critic who, among other things, hates Charlie Kaufman <laughs> movies, yeah. uh, including Synecdoche, which he calls an irredeemable, torturous, tortuous yawn, <laughs> close quote. <laughs> why, why, uh, <laughs> and he doesn't stop with Synecdoche. He goes after your other stuff as well. Yeah. Uh, what's, <laughs> I mean, I, I got a kick out of the whole thing, but I just am curious, why go after yourself like that? Well, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, my motivation to start thinking about film critics is that I have this relationship with film critics. So yeah. I have one, you know, but the, but the larger issue, and I, and I wondered if I was, if it was a mistake to put me in, but there is a larger plot point that is revealed in the course of the book that explains why, what's going on in the book. And it has something to do with that. And I don't want to reveal what that is. If anybody wants to read the book, it's, but, but it's in there. And, and I, and I, it felt like it was addressing something that I really, I found interesting. So, um, and I'll leave it at that. But that, yeah, that's, no, that's why it's in there. And did you enjoy the process of writing a novel? How, how, how would you compare and contrast that to writing a script? Well, I mean, it took me five and a half years. So it took a long time. And I was doing all this other work in between. I mean, I was, you know, as I told you, I was yeah. taking jobs uh, to pay my rent. Um, I was really scared when I started. I felt uh, I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm not going to be able to do this. It's going to be obvious to anyone who eventually reads this book that I don't know how to do this. So that paralyzed me for like a year. Uh, once I got past that, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I wanted to finish it a lot more quickly than I did. And, um, and that was always hanging over my head that I needed to finish it. Uh, so that was a bit stressful. But yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm planning on doing it again. I'm going oh, to write another one, yeah. Okay, so then also obviously in the last five years, you... I don't know if this must have been overlapping. You started work on I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And I guess for people who who may not know, this is inspired by a novel that uh, came out in 2016, I believe. But that, like Adaptation, the movie, it's a very different script than the novel itself. And I guess uh, with a lot of the uh, kind of surreal stuff added by you as as people might imagine from prior work, that that was your, con you know, a, a new contribution to everything else. What made you want to adapt, though, a, a novel by someone else as opposed to doing what you do so well when you write your own material? I think that, you know, um, I had the sense that somebody else, a pre-existing work was an easier thing to sell and something within a genre 
was an easier thing to sell. So I was actively looking for something that I could maybe get financed. And I came upon Ian Reed's book and um, I really liked it. And it was very small. It takes place in a car, in a, a farmhouse, in a, um, in a high school. And that's pretty much it. And, you know, a couple of other places, but, you know, it's four characters more or less. That, and it was popular. It was a popular book. So there was kind of a reason that somebody would want to make it. Uh, so that's why. And then, um, you know, I, I, I told my producer, Anthony Bregman, about it. And it turns out he has a deal with Netflix and he brought it to them and they, they were interested. So that's what happened. So a lot less painful of a process of just getting it made than the one prior uh, live action directing experience 12 years earlier. It's yeah. fair to say it was a, a lot less angst uh, riddled. Yeah, there was there was it was co- completely smooth. Uh, process to get to the point of, pre- of pre-production. I would say once we were in pre-production, it wasn't as smooth anymore. It was a struggle, you know, because, for budgetary reasons, which, you know, it, it was it was hard. But I had such great people that I was working with that I'm um, that we were able to make it. And you know, people as always are are looking to label movies. In this case, they seems to be the feeling that this is the the closest to a out-and-out horror movie that you have done, although I know that you're saying Synecdoche was not a, the opposite of that. But in this case, just revisiting some of those themes that we talked about earlier with Synecdoche, aging, loneliness, questioning one's sanity, physically, you know, ailing, as we see with the parents, are those things that, as you kind of, if you were to dissect your own, uh, you know, what drew you to the novel in the first place— do you think it comes back to to those things or or was it something else that primarily made you want to tell this story? Well, I think that those are aspects of the book. I think that they might be more focused on in my in in in, in my version of it, uh but they're definitely there. Um I, I what I what attracted me to the book is the dreaminess of it. Uh I I felt like I like worlds that exist irrationally. And Ian's book did that. And I, I, I felt like there was something exciting and cinematic about that to me. So I, I think that was probably the thing that most drew me to this as a, as a project. So when people, I've, I've been reading a lot of other people's takes on the movie, cause I question my own a little bit and I just wanted to see what other people say. And it seems like, you know, everyone has their own opinion about it. There are some people who are a little confused or frustrated by it. Other people think they can, they, they've seen the light when they, in terms of walking away from it. I just wonder to, in order to make sure that your team, your actors, your, you know, production designer and everybody else was on, did you do anything to make sure they were on the same page as you in terms of your own what you were driving at saying here, like, do you sit down and kind of make sure that everyone's on the same page or do you, are you okay with everyone being on sort of a a different wavelengths as long as it works for you? I I remember with Synecdoche, um, when we had our first production meeting with all of the department heads, how surprised I was, how differently everybody read the script. I couldn't believe it. It seemed very clear to me. This is what it looked like. Um, (laughs) But I learned then that it's not clear and that people have their own thing. And I think that's where you kind of unify your, at least in terms of production, you unify the vision 
you kind of, and once people understand through conversation what you're thinking, then they're, then they're in the same lane as you are. And I, I think that that happens always. And then that, that's a fairly simple process uh, in terms of the actors and stuff. You know, I talked about ideas with them, but mostly I wanted to make sure they had stuff that they could play uh, in terms of actual human interaction and human emotions, because otherwise it flies off into some ether of nonsense. And, and so I gave them that and they gave themselves that. And that's how we proceeded. And, you know, I, I couldn't help but think that it in some ways could as easily have been a uh, uh, excellent play in the sense that you don't have many locations. You have very long uh, exchanges between just a couple of, or at some points, four actors. W- why was it important to you to do such long, uninterrupted takes? I think there's some that were as long as 25 minutes. That itself seems like an interesting challenge to kind of impose on yourself. I, I feel like there's a continuity in terms of uh, like a dynamic between characters when they get to play a scene and the scenes happen to be long. I mean, we didn't use any 25 minute uninterrupted take, but uh, we allowed it to play out many times from the different camera angles. And that was the idea behind it. It was the same thing in Anomalisa where I didn't isolate the three actors from each other in, in a booth, having them do their performance separately. We recorded them all together because actors play off each other, you know, mm-hmm. so allow that. It seems to be the right idea to me. I know that you're very much not about, you know, specifying for anyone what you hope they take away from a script that you've written or or film you've directed. But and in fact, I believe is your production company. So why is it is it still called Projective Testing Services? Yeah. Service. Singular. Service. And, And why is that? What does that mean? Well, projective tests are psychological tests. Uh, Rorschach is the most well-known example. They're kind of ambiguous uh, images that are shown to people and their reaction is the thing that tells you who they are uh, or tells you what their issues are or something like that. So I thought it was kind of an interesting, because I, that's sort of my philosophy about when I when about any kind of art is that when you create um, something, it exists as, an, as a conversation between the person who created it and the person who's interacting with it. And so that's what I try to do with my movies, which is why I don't want to talk, what, talk about what they're about to me, because it's, it's kind of irrelevant what it's about to me. Well, that I think is as good a place as any to leave this. I thank you so much for your time. It's always great to chat with you. And thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.